passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Stephen Alby. So again, it is an honor and a privilege to be with you to study the Word of the Lord together. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here at Crosswinds, pastor student ministries, so some of you may not have seen me unless you're a student, but um, it, is, uh, it is truly fun to come here and be able to preach in person. Um, like I've said before, I don't like uh, appearing here in video because I can't see you guys, and I love you guys. I love seeing you guys again. So I'm really, really happy that I've gotten to be here no matter how many laws I had to break to get here. Um, but what we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking a little bit of a break from Genesis and I feel like um, the best time to do that is after the genealogies. Don't you guys agree? Um, after taking this break, we're kind of at a point where right before the life of Joseph, we just finished the life of Jacob and Esau. So we've decided that we're going to hang out in the Psalms for a few weeks. And I don't know about you guys, but when given the opportunity to preach a Psalm, it can be pretty overwhelming, especially because there's a bunch. There's like 150 Psalms in here. And what I love about the Psalms is that they cover every range of emotion. They cover all of life. I mean, we have some psalms that call us to worship God. We have some psalms that were actually sung as they would approach the temple, as they would walk up the steps. They're called psalms of ascent. We have psalms that don't have a resolution, which are some, there's only four psalms that actually don't have a, a resolution to them or that end on kind of a, a tough note. But we also have psalms that are joyful and full of what God has given the person who wrote it. Now, this psalm is going to be a different category than all those. It's, it's called a psalm of lament. Now, what's interesting about this psalm, we're going to be in Psalm 10. So if you guys have a copy of Scripture or you have your, your outline, it's printed in there for you. Um, please turn to, to Psalm 10. But before we get there, I want you guys to know just a little bit about this psalm. It was written most likely by David. It's said because um, there actually isn't an author attached to it, but because Psalm 9 is really similar and we know David wrote that, we figure, um, I figure it sounds very, very similar. But this is a psalm that can be very easily read just in the time period that it was written. And what I say by that is that it can be very easy to read these things and not see how they connect here. But before we read the psalm, to give you a bit of a context, the the people that he's talking about here aren't just found in, in David's time period, obviously. But friends, these people are the people that we see all the time in our news feeds. These are the people who commit acts of evil. It seems like every few days we're told of another innocent life taken. It seems like every few days our news feed is telling us another city to pray for, another atrocity that has happened, innocent life, no matter where we stand politically, there are times where it feels like evil is winning. There are times where it feels like we see evil at work, but it's not just an atrocity, but also in prosperity. We see people who cheat and lie and steal succeed. We see them have every worldly good handed to them. We see them have absolutely no care about the things of God and the righteousness of God and the poor and the needy, but they succeed and they have everything they could ever want, times thousands. 
we see them not just rewarded and prospering, but even if charges are brought against them, we see them escape or we see them bailed out. It can be really incredibly frustrating. And sometimes we wonder as we read the Psalms, sometimes we go to a Psalm that gives us comfort, perhaps in joy or in worship, but if we're honest, sometimes when we read these things, it can feel like God isn't as close as He feels on a Sunday morning. It can feel like God is really far away. It can feel like God is not even in the midst of this, or maybe He has taken His hands off of this world. It seems like, I mean, I get sick at the state of this world. It feels like the wicked are winning, and the good and the just are ignored, and I know we all ask the question, where is God? Where is God in the midst of trouble and suffering? Why does it seem like the wicked always prosper and the good and the just seem to suffer? That's what this psalm talks about. That is what this purpose of this psalm is. I hope as we read this, it doesn't just apply to people far away, too. I hope that not only does it apply to the people that we see in our news feeds, but the seeds that we see taken to their extreme, fully grown in this passage are seeds that are present in every single one of us, myself included. They're seeds that we will see taken, and as we read this, I pray that God would apply the psalm not just to others, but to us. Some of us need to be convicted of the description that we read. Some of us need to be encouraged by knowing that there are evil people in this world and that God has a plan But I know that every single one of us in here needs hope. And what's so great about this psalm is that it doesn't end without hope. In fact, this psalm is one of the greatest reminders of who we serve and the hope that we have in our God. So keep those things in mind as we go through this verse by verse. I pray that God will illuminate the text for us, show us what He would have us hear. So as we start in verse 1, we begin with a question. Psalm 10.1 says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? My friends, there are going to be times in your life when God seems far away. Where it feels like God is gone, or maybe he's taken his hands off of your situation. And I know that this question is going to come to your mind. And if we're honest, as soon as this question hits our mind, we instantly feel guilty for even thinking it, right? Maybe we know in our mind that God is always present. God is always here. But yet in our hearts or as we look around, we think, how on earth is God present in this? Where is God in this? We ask these things, where are you, God? And and what you need to be encouraged by, even in the first verse of the psalm, is to be encouraged to ask those questions. I want you to ask those questions. God wants you to ask those questions because he can handle it. Sometimes we feel like maybe God is going to look down on us for for asking a question in a mean way or for for seeking Him when we're trying to figure out where He is. My friends, God handles your questions. He can handle them. He's big. God needs no defense. But God wants you to ask these questions because it shows that you care. It shows that you actually are trying to figure out where He is in the midst of this. My friends, the danger doesn't come from asking these questions. It comes from not asking these questions. The danger comes from not seeking God, from maybe just saying that, okay, maybe the world is just evil. Maybe life is just meant to be this way. Maybe that's just human nature. But my friends, when we stop seeking God, we have no chance of seeing where He's at work. 
All these questions mean that you are seeking God. And know that he will hear you when you seek him. He will embrace you. He's not going to condemn you for asking questions. If there's anyone who wants us to ask every question we have, it's God. He is the source of all knowledge and truth. So never feel guilty when this question comes up. That's why I love that it's in the psalm. I love that it's here with David because oftentimes we think of David as this like larger-than-life character, but he asks these questions too. So by all means, seek where is God in times of trouble? Now, while you and I have our own situations and stories when we may have asked this question, the people that he is talking about here are a very specific kind of people. Now, I've heard it said, author David Platt has written about this. He has said that this is merely eight marks of a wicked person. But I think it's more than that because if we're honest, none of us would ever call ourselves wicked. And if you do, then you need to seek God and not take pride in that. But... None of us would actually think of ourselves as truly wicked people. Wickedness is something that's always for somebody else, right? It's always for somebody over there who's on television committing incredibly evil acts. We think wickedness is always that extreme. The thing is, is that the seeds, like I said, are present in every single one of us that are maybe taken to extreme in these examples but can easily become infected in our lives. Just because the wickedness hasn't spread to its fullest extreme in us doesn't mean we shouldn't be cautious of these things. doesn't mean the psalm can't apply to us. What I see here is actually something that we all struggle with. A pastor and friend of mine named Mark Halleck has called it this. He actually says that this looks like the marks of a practical atheist. So what do I mean by practical atheist? A practical atheist is someone who says they believe in God. It's probably somebody who even goes to church every Sunday and would consider you foolish if you didn't say you believed in God. But yet their actions practically speak something completely different. What they do on Sunday has no effect on what they do on Monday. It's the kind of person that with their words they profess a knowledge of God, but their actions don't show that they actually know God. Because as we read through this, you can't blame somebody who doesn't know the law of God, who is far from God, for acting like they don't know the law of God or far from God. You can't blame a non-Christian for acting like a non-Christian. We could, on a moral sense, maybe say, I believe that is wrong. But if they don't know any better, then we can't really have a lot of recourse, at least not with the kind of words that are said here. This looks like somebody who should know better. These marks here look like somebody who has known God or has seen God is maybe even part of a church family. And yet their actions show everything opposite of what they say they believe. And as we look at this passage, we need to be asking ourselves how we function this way. Do we act as practical atheists? Do what we do and what we say connect? Because they will. And what are our actions speaking to the outside world? Because that oftentimes is what people are going to hear more than they hear our words. They're going to see, does this have any bearing on your life? So let's look through these verses here. We're going to break it down into what I see actually as eight marks of a practical atheist. So starting with number one, we see the practical atheist seeks their own selfish gain. Read with me in verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 10. It says, In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. 
For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. The only thing going on in the mind of this kind of person is how can I gain personally? What can I do to advance my agenda? And I don't care who gets in my way or who I have to step on to do it, but if anything changes what I believe the trajectory of my life should be, then it is to be gotten rid of. This is that person who on Sunday comes to church, but on Monday acts completely different, acts completely opposite. And not only do they do this, they don't trust God for his provision and timing, but manipulate situations to get what they want out of it, which ultimately disrespects our God and Father. Now, it can be very easy to say, oh yeah, that's totally this person. You might even be nudging your neighbor, being like, yeah, that's totally you. This is us. I can't tell you how many times I have said that I respect God and His will, but have done things to try to find my own agenda, or have said, yeah, you know, God, I really think that you want this for me, so I'm going to justify it and say that you do want it for me, so then I can even tell people that this is God's will for me, when I never actually seek God. And if we're honest, we've all done this. Maybe on some level, all of us have experienced this before. So we've got to ask ourselves, how do we seek ourselves or how do we seek God? So number two, the second mark of a practical atheist is that they ignore the one true God. It says in verse 4, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Now what we see at the heart of practical atheism is the heart of all sin. It's pride. Pride says that if I don't bow the knee to God, I'm going to expect everyone to bow the knee to me. Because my friends, if you don't trust God, you're going to start trusting yourself. You're going to take pride in all of what you do and you're going to believe that you are God. I don't know about you, but every time I've tried to be God, it hasn't worked out well. And this is what makes me think that this psalm is not just talking to the wicked of this world. It talks to people who should know better. Because the person of this world who doesn't care about God isn't going to think about God. The person of this world who doesn't care isn't going to have to think about there being no God. But it says here that all of his thoughts are that there is no God. This is a person who has to remind themselves constantly that there isn't a God to justify what they do. Because if they were honest, they would know that there is a God. They would know that their pride is not the ultimate They would know that their actions that we see expounded on later on in this passage are against God and against His work. And now think about this. What does this say to the outside world? What does it say when we fall into the trap that says that God is more of a burden or an annoyance to us than a God to be known and worshipped and loved? What does it say to people out there when we say one thing and do another? My friends, it makes Christianity at the very surface level just seem unimportant. It seems ignorable. It seems like, oh, okay, well, that's just where they feel like spending their Sunday, but you know what? They act like me every other part of the week, so it must not really be that important to them, so why, why would I spend my Sunday there? But my friends, when taken even further, it makes Christianity not just seem unimportant. It seems like a joke. It seems like a joke to the outside world. Because if we say we believe what we, if we act like we believe what we say we believe, then our actions are going to be one where we acknowledge the one true God in everything that we do 
instead of convincing ourselves that our actions are justified. And what we need to see, my friends, is do our actions line up with what we say we believe or is God really that important to us? Remember, if you don't bow the knee before the God of the universe, then you will try to be God. You'll expect people to bow to you. It can be very easy to say that we trust in God, but our actions oftentimes say that we trust in us. It actually leads us to our third mark of the practical atheist. They trust in worldly prosperity more than anything else. In verse 5, it says that his ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight, for, and as for all of his foes, he puffs at them. I thought this was an interesting term, but I really feel like this picture gets at exactly who this kind of person is. Think about somebody who is presented with gentle rebuke. That is something you know that what they're doing is not aligned with what they say they believe. Maybe they're, they're living with somebody they shouldn't be living with, or maybe they're, they're acting a way that they shouldn't be, and re- they respond with this. They literally puff at you. I think it's interesting because like, I, I did some research into like, what this means, and that's exactly what it means. It means this inaudible sound of complete uh, indifference to you. How often do we, maybe not with our mouth, but with our heart, do those things? How often do we puff at those who try to seek to correct us when the word of the Lord is telling us something, you know, telling us one thing, but our desires and our heart want to do another, and we're just like, it doesn't matter. But ultimately what that says, you do that enough times, and suddenly you're going to stop caring about what God actually says, or you're going to stop caring about what other people say. You're going to let arrogance have its full fruit to where you just don't care. My friends, it is a great detriment, not just to you, but to the people around you, to the outside world, when we see God with that kind of indifference. Now, also, in this trusting and worldly prosperity, I don't know about you, but I get really angry when I see people who are far from God prosper. When I see somebody who has done everything they can to deny God get more and more money or have such a strong influence on other people or have everything they could ever possibly want times a thousand, And yet, I feel like, you know, God, I've been really good. Why haven't you given me anything? Like, I start acting like the older son in the prodigal son story. It's like, why have you given this evil person everything? I want stuff. I've been with you. I read my Bible every day. I pray all the time. Like, why why aren't aren't I seeing prosperity? Why, Why haven't you given me stuff to enjoy? And think about it. It's that... We all know the corrupt CEO who made all their money by stepping on other people or a person who seems like they have everything they want because they lie and they cheat to get it. This kind of person despises everything that goes against their agenda. And what's so crazy is that even if they claim to know God, their actions show that they claim their trust and their hope is built on a foundation of their own bank account, their own agenda, and everything that eventually will spoil or fade or disappear. And we've seen it happen when those people get brought low. And my friends, I hope we would learn from their, their example when we see what happens when the stock market crashes and all of a sudden all of that money we had stored away isn't there anymore. 
when we see what our heart truly longs for. It said, if you're trying to find an idol in your life, think about the one thing that if it was taken away would devastate you completely. And while there are good things that God has given us to enjoy, the only ultimate thing that we should build our trust and our hope on is God himself. So we need to ask how often we trust in worldly prosperity more than we trust in the God of the Bible. So number four, the fourth mark of a practical atheist says this, they live with deadly pride. Everything we've seen before stems from pride. Everything we're going to see continuing stems from pride. Pride is a, is a poison in us. Is the original sin. It is this, this constant desire to know, like to feel like we're in control, that we know what's right, and God is just kind of relegated to being our little cheerleader or maybe our genie that we go to whenever we want something. But Psalm 10:6 shows us a danger that we can all have. It says, He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. This is the kind of person that believes that they are immune to tragedy. This is a person who even looks down on somebody who is going through suffering and thinks to themselves, maybe if they just had more education, they wouldn't be in this problem. Or maybe if they just had a stronger work ethic, like me. My friends, if you've experienced difficulty, these these words can go through your head too. Maybe not explicitly taught, but maybe implicitly caught by our culture, we have the sense that our actions are going to be what gets us out of difficulty. And oftentimes we miss the reason that we go through it. Sometimes God is so concerned with what we worship that he will destroy other things to get us to put our hope and our trust in him. It's hard to go through and it seems unfair at times, but you have to remember that the ultimate thing in this world is not our stuff, is not our job, is not our family. It's God. It's our relationship with him through Christ. These are people who believe that their savings account is going to shield them from pain or feel like if they just had enough, they just had enough, they want to get enough money so they don't have to depend on God anymore. If we're honest, this is us again. I can't tell you how many times I'm tempted to find security not in God's promises but in what I see in my bank account or in my education or my work ethic, whatever it is. Find how you live with deadly pride. So number five, this gets a little bit more action-oriented. Number five shows us that the practical atheist doesn't just have a tough heart, but that heart results in action, and it says that their words are sinful. Psalm 10.7 says that his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. I want to talk about words a little bit here. I know you guys are probably thinking, okay, he's the youth pastor. Of course, he's going to talk about words. If you, don't say, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything of all. I've heard it all. But my friends, we need to recognize just how powerful words can be. With words, we can build others up or we can tear them down. With our words, we can affirm what our actions say. Or with our words, we can deny even our actions. They both have to be connected. Now, in the Hebrew, all of these words that they use here, cursing, deceit, oppression, mischief, iniquity, all of those connect together to show just how deadly words can be. Literally, in the Hebrew, to oppress means to beat someone down. Have any of you been beaten down by words? I know I have. 
Maybe you're feeling beaten down by the words of the Bible right now. That's okay. That's Holy Spirit convicting you. I know going through this, I felt beaten up by this passage as well. But you guys know that line that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me, right? Is that true? Honestly, I think that's a lie. Because my friends, a, a baseball bat could, yes, break your bones, but only words can break your heart. And only words can steal your hope and your joy. Are we the kind of people that use our words to build one another up, to encourage and strengthen one another, or do we use them to tear other people down? Now, this isn't even just the words we say. Sometimes it's the action in which we say them. We could say the right words, but in our, in our tone, in our passive aggression, in our heart, we could be meaning to say these things to hurt. We could even say truthful things. But when said with the wrong motives, they can also be those little barbs and those little stings that destroy relationships and again say to the outside world that we're no different than they are. That God has little to no impact on our life. If you don't believe me how powerful the tongue is, hear these words from James 3, 7 through 12. This sums it up perfectly. James says, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree bear olives? Or can a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond produce fresh water. You see this opposite thing. He's saying, if you guys are truly planted in what you say you're planted in, in the word of the Lord, in the grace and salvation of Christ, then your words are going to reflect that. The source that you are planted in is going to affect the words that you say. I mean, think about Matthew 12, 34. It says, for out and of abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The only way that we can change what our words are, this isn't just a, a do-better kind of thing. Stop cursing. Stop yelling at people. No, ultimately, for your words to change, it needs to be a change of the heart. My friends, we can't change our hearts. Only Jesus can change our hearts. Only Jesus can clean up our mouths through cleansing our hearts. And this is very convicting for all of us. Honestly, there are times where something will come out of my mouth that is poisonous. And I have no idea where it comes from. And there are times where I start to think of, okay, what have I been filling my heart with? And maybe it was because throughout the whole day, I harbored anger toward the things that I saw. Or, I'll be honest, I love listening to really heavy metal music when I work out. I need it to help me lift. But when there are times that I notice how angry I was getting, I actually had to cut back from that. I had to cut back from listening to this music, especially because the heavy metal I listened to wasn't the good Christian heavy metal that's out now. It was the kind that had words full of anger and hate. It was amazing how quickly that came out in my heart. Now, the radio station K-Love in Colorado, I don't know if they did this across the nation, but I remember in Denver they did this, where they actually issued a challenge to people, even non-Christians, and said, listen, like, replace what you normally listen to music-wise with K-Love. 
listen to powerful, encouraging worship music that's very uplifting and see how your life changes. Report to us. And they got letters flooding in from everyone, from Christian to non-Christian that said, I don't know why, but for some reason I was happier. I don't know why, but for some reason, like, my words even changed. It's because they were filling their heart with something that was good and pure. They were filling their heart with the Word of God, spoken and sung in song. My friends, look at your own lives. Think about the times when you have said that thing that you wish you could take back, but it's already been out there. Words that are meant to hurt. And then look and see, what are you filling your heart with? Is it the Word of God or is it the song's fool's? This is something we can all grow in. Is the Word of God what fills our hearts so that our words come forth and are encouraging and loving and strengthening? And aside from the benefit in your life and to those around you, think about this. How do Christians, or how do non-Christians on the street see Christians? If you ask them honestly, would they tell you that they see Christians as a bunch of joyful encouragers? Or are we a bunch of judgmental gossipers? And that perception can only be changed by us. It can only be changed by the Christian that fills their heart with love and encouragement instead of judgment and gossip and uses those words to build others up. I want our words to be the kind that people look at us and say, who do you worship? Who is your God? Why on earth are you this encouraging to me? You should hate me because I disagree with everything that you stand for. How is it that you come to me when I'm in times of crisis and encourage me and help me and love me? Those are actions that are going to speak volumes to people. It's amazing how much our words can change how people perceive us. So we see that not only are their words evil, but also it goes from their heart to their mouth now also to their hands, we see number six, six mark of a practical atheist is that all their works are even evil. Just listen to this picture that David writes. I love this image. In Psalm eight, or 10, 8 and 9, it says, He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor, and he seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. What a picture. How often have we seen this kind of person? Now, granted, this is taken to an extreme, and I think rightly so. Think about it. There's only one other person in all of Scripture who's compared to a lion who lurks in ambush, seeing whom he will devour. It's Satan. These are people who are not acting as if God is their ruler or if God is their father. These are people who are acting like Satan, the enemy of this world. They seek out ways to do evil. They are creative in their schemes. It seems like every day we're told of new and different ways that humans can hurt each other. New and different ways that humans can cause calamity and destruction to each other. My friends, may this seed never sprout in us. May we nip it as quickly as we see it. May we take every thought captive as much as we would like to manipulate situations to get what we want out of people. May we recognize that the end to this 
if taken to its full extent, is this picture. May we always seek that our works match what we say we believe. Now, going on, we see this take shape in a couple other ways. And our seventh way that the practical atheist acts is they oppress the needy of this world. Very specifically, we see in verse 10 that the helpless are crushed, they sink down, and they fall by his might. This person is not interested in using their power to help others, but to hurt them. We've seen it all across the world. This happens constantly. And finally, the last mark we see of practical atheists is that they disregard God's justice. Verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Again, I want to share the conviction that has been hitting me so hard as I've been practicing or preparing for this message. How often do we justify our actions by thinking, maybe God has turned aside? Or maybe God won't really see that. Or maybe we know that God might see it, but maybe he won't actually care. And maybe we won't get caught by our friends. Maybe we can lie and we can cheat because we know that nobody will ever catch us or they won't care about a little lie or a little cheat. Again, these are seeds that if you let them continue to grow, you see in this passage what they can turn into. So these are the eight marks of a practical atheist. Keep this list. Use it to guide your prayer. Ask God if there are ways that you are acting this way. If there are seeds that are here, ask Him to remove them from you. My friends, I pray that this has been convicting, but not without hope. My friends, I pray that as you get uncomfortable and as you wrestle with these things, and maybe you think of the ways that you've acted this way, that you take comfort in the fact that the psalm doesn't end there. The psalm could end there, as we are all tempted to do when we see the evil constantly showing up on our newsfeed. For us to just continue to think, okay, maybe God doesn't really see these things. Maybe God doesn't really care. It can be very easy for us to just accept that this is part of human nature and that there isn't an end involved. But my friends, there are some people who who actually profess to be Christian but believe that God isn't powerful that he has no power to stop evil. It's called open theism. It is a heresy. It says that God is actually surprised by our evil, by our actions. This is something that is not the God of the Bible. But when you talk about social justice and you go into some of these circles, it's prevalent. It says, well, well, we kind of need to get God off the hook from, from seeing all these things. So when I don't see him work, well, I'll just say, well, maybe he can't work. Maybe he can't act. But my friends, this is not the God of the Bible. This is not the God that we serve. This is not the God that we see expounded in these last verses of this passage. What we're going to see here is encouragement for those of us who are Christian. What we see is something that should be incredibly terrifying for us when we think about those who are far from God. So let's look, starting in verse 12. Love this passage. It says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call into account, but you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it up into your hands. To to you the helpless commits himself. You have been a helper to the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. 
The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that the man who is of this earth may strike terror no more. My friends, this is a battle cry. This is a call to God to do what we know he can do, to do what he does best, to recognize in our heart that though God may seem far away, he is present even in these things. Four of my favorite words in this entire passage and also in all of scripture are these, but you do see. But you do see. God may seem far away when we see the wicked of this world triumph, but he sees. God may seem like he is apart from us when we are experiencing evil, but he sees it too. Those evil acts that were committed to you, maybe even in secret, were seen by God. They broke his heart. He cares for you. But also those little sins that we do in secret are seen also by God. Those things that we think that God maybe missed or maybe weren't that bad, he sees as well. This should be both encouraging and convicting. But I want to spend a little bit of time here because I know the question we all ask when we read this passage is, why hasn't God shown up yet? If you're like me, you might get really fired up when you read this passage and think, yeah, that's right, God, get them! Go! Come on! What are you doing? Like, go and, and break their arm. Like, destroy the wicked of this world. Why haven't you shown up? There are times where I look at the evil that ISIS does and think, God, why don't you just wipe them away? How easy would it be, God? You're God. You have 10,000 angels at your command. You have billions more that we don't even hear about that you can just send and like, come on, what's going on? Okay, God, maybe you, you want me to be your swinging hammer of justice, you know? Maybe I'll just go and I'll enact my own brand of justice, you know, and get all fired up about it. But my friends, this is not God's purpose. What we need to remember is that if God did annihilate the wicked of this world, there'd be no hope for anybody in this room. While it may seem as though the truly evil, the truly desolate, are the ones who are so far from God that God should just wipe them away, we have to remember that on a level, it's us too. My friends, we may not have gone to the extreme that we see in the wicked and evil of this world, but it does say in Scripture that if you're guilty of committing one transgression against the law, you're guilty of all of it. In God's economy, every single one of us is evil. That's why he had to take it so seriously to not just send someone to take the punishment for our sins, but to send God, Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, to die on the cross to take our punishment and our sin because God took it so seriously that it required that level of sacrifice. And for those of us who are Christians... We need to be reminded that this is actually a good thing. God is infinitely just, and he's infinitely powerful, yes, but he's also infinitely kind and infinitely merciful. There would be absolutely no hope if God acted the way some of us want him to act. It's called divine forbearance, and this is a theological term that is one of the hardest things to wrestle with as a Christian. God's patience, God's kindness. I truly believe that God is patient to give us opportunity to spread his gospel. 
He is patient and kind because while destroying evil would end it, think about how much more His glory is shown and how much more His mercy is shown when He saves the wicked. Have you ever prayed for your enemy? And I'm not talking about the prayer that I just talked about where we pray that God would destroy them. Have you prayed that your enemy would find God? Have we prayed that God would take even the most evil of this world and turn them? That he would show up in a miraculous way in his power to save them as every single one of us who claim to be a Christian have been saved by God? Or do we think that certain people are too far away? Do we think that there are certain people that are too evil? It's like, okay, God, I'll accept your grace for me because I'm not that bad. But them? But that person? Friends, God desires that no one perish. God desires that we spread His gospel to this world no matter who it is. It's been said before, and I love this quote. It says that there is only one kind of person on this earth who can rescue someone from the horrors of human trafficking and then turn around and preach the gospel of forgiveness to the trafficker. And that is the Christian. But my friends, if we're honest, this is one place where our actions have not lived up to our words. Even in my life, I've thought, okay, God, what a, really, that person? You don't know what they did to me. You may understand it, you may have seen it, but God, like the pain that it caused me. God, really, the things that they do? You can't honestly expect me to preach the gospel of forgiveness to a person who traffics humans, to a person who kills Christians. But my friends, think of it this way. What would happen if the God of the universe saved the head of Isis? If he had a genuine conversion to faith? A man who has championed the death of Christians, a man who has caused turmoil, has set himself completely against the cause of Christ, how amazing would it be if God saved him? And maybe some of you are thinking, I don't like that. He doesn't deserve it. But be reminded that a whole bunch of this book was written by somebody who was exactly like that. The Pharisee Saul persecuted Christians. He looked on approvingly as Stephen was stoned. He called for the death and the persecution of those who believed differently than he did. And yet on the road to Damascus, God saved him. Turned him into one of the greatest missionaries in history. Elevated him to the level of an apostle. And because of him, we have some of the richest exposition of the gospel present to us, passed down generation after generation. If you don't believe God is powerful to save, even the foremost of sinners, look at Paul. Look at Paul. He says time and time again that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And he wasn't just saying that to be cute, he meant it. I always think about how amazing it would be if Richard Dawkins or Stephen Hawking, these like these angry atheists called the, new, the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse, them and a couple others, if God saved them, could you imagine what would happen if Stephen Hawking all of a sudden came out with a book that said, I did the math and it turns out God exists? Could you imagine what kind of word 
he would have, what kind of voice he would have to these people who follow his every word. We can be tempted to say, God, shut his mouth and keep him from expounding these things, but what we should be doing is praying for our enemies and saying, God, how much more of your glory, how much more of your grace can be shown if you save this person? Let's bring it even more practical. What is keeping us from sharing that gospel with the person next to us? With our neighbor, with our friend, with our family member? Because as much as we love the fact that God is patient, we are told in his word that there will come a time when his patience runs out. There will come a time that he has ordained before the beginning of the world that he will no longer be patient. And suddenly the opportunity to share the gospel with that friend, that family member, that coworker, that person who gets us coffee, that person who checks us out at the grocery store, the opportunity will be gone. And even more personally, there's going to be a time when that opportunity for us is gone. It's said that the person who waits to repent at 11 will die at 10. And while this isn't necessarily a true case in everybody's life, it does show the urgency that we have, not only in our own lives, to accept what God has said. I, I honestly want to ask you what is stopping you from accepting what the Lord has so graciously given us. And Christian, what is stopping you from spreading this word? What is stopping you from going to those people who so desperately need to hear your word? Hear this gospel of forgiveness. To be open with the fact that God has saved us as sinners too. But finally, I want you guys to be encouraged that God just doesn't, doesn't just see the actions of evil and will eventually call them to account at the day of his coming. But he also sees the actions of the righteous. He sees our actions. He sees those who champion God's justice. He sees those who go into those awkward situations, who make themselves incredibly uncomfortable so that people will know the gospel. I love how it says it in 2 Chronicles 16.9. It says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You want another clear example of how your actions and your words can connect? Go. Go into this world. Preach the gospel to those who are perishing. Tell them what you have been told. Tell them why you believe. And as awkward as it may seem, know that it shows to them that God is important to you. If you find yourself discouraged and dismayed at the state of this world, take heart that God does see and will call to account the evil that he's done. But he also wants to save the souls of this world. If you find any of these eight marks present in your life, even in a seed, or maybe fully sprouted, take heart that with the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Savior and the power of the Holy Spirit, you have the power to fight sin. The idea is not that you will become sinless, but that you will sin less and seek God more. Power is there for those who seek God. If you want ways that you can champion God's justice, care for the poor and the needy, but also remember that the way that we care, that we show God's justice is to care for the lost too. Care for those who are far from God. And finally, my friends, if you know someone who is without the hope of Christ, with love and truth, I want you to share the gospel with them. My friends, don't wait. 
because you have no idea how many chances you're going to get. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you, God, that this is something that is not just applicable to others, but applicable to us. God, I pray for my friends here who may be far from you, who may be living a life that is different from what they even may say they believe, God, that you would show them the power that you have to break their sin. God, that they would bow the knee to you and not to themselves. Father, give us that support and that encouragement that you have said in your word to take this gospel to the people who need it. Whether that's next door or in the next state or the next country, God. I pray, Lord, that your law and the ways that we have transgressed you would break our heart so that the gospel would heal our heart. That, God, we would see your law and your gospel merge together in the justice you have shown us on the cross. And that, God, we would take that message into the street. That, God, people would see us as joyful encouragers, as people concerned with the souls of others, rather than gossipers or judgers, that we would save all judgment for you. So, God, give us more of you, more of your word, more of your life in our hearts. We pray all this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Stephen's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.